odd jobs, you know, shoveling chicken shit into plastic bags. The fact that they suffer the consequences for the rest of their lives shows to me how deep humanity is. Welcome to the fourth episode of Such That Cast. Today I'm talking to Noel Sharkey, who is Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics and Professor of Public Engagement at the University of Sheffield. Some of you might know Sharkey from being the host of the BBC series Robot Wars and Techno Wars, or from his media appearances on BBC Newsnight or Jon Stewart's Daily Show. But he's also one of the most important figures when it comes to criticizing the military push towards autonomous robots and drones, which has been most of our conversation talking about. I should say that if I sound a bit groggy in this episode, the reason is that we were both celebrating the PhD defense of a colleague the night before, none of us really having gotten much sleep. Noel Sharkey was of course fresh as a daisy in the morning, which is not something I can say about myself. But anyway, a recurring theme of this podcast series, which is also very evident with Sharkey, is just how hard many of these people have worked to get to where they are. And not just hard work within academia, but also having gone through all kinds of side jobs before even thinking about academia. I do not think it's a coincidence that Sharkey and many others I've had on the podcast later dedicate their career to bridging the gap between philosophy and politics, actually making a difference where it matters, be it by voicing important concerns in the media or talking directly to policymakers and the military. So not only did I really enjoy the conversation with Sharkey, he's got a very important message that many people need to hear, and I hope it can inspire others to find their own way of influencing the powers that be. So without further ado, here's the marvelous and inspiring Noel Sharkey. your background as well. When I looked up your resume and the number of letters behind your name, and you have two doctorates and an impressive background, um, but I also heard that you dropped out of high school at 15. Yes, I did. How do you go from dropping out of high school at 15 to becoming somebody with two doctorates and one of the leading experts in the world on this area? With difficulty. <laughs> well, I, I was, I was, I, I dropped out of high school because I was obsessed with music. So I dropped out. To, I was a guitarist, and I had a job in a dance band. So I, I went for that. Wow. Yes, in Ireland. So you have to play every kind of music. Right. I mean, at at that age, I was only interested in the top twenty. But you got to play the top twenty. But you also had to play waltzes and foxtrots right. and you know <laughs> everything. So it was quite, it was quite good training and. Uh, I really like that. But when I say I dropped out of school, though, I was um, I went to a really bad school. Right. Uh, when I was eleven years old in the in Ireland, Northern Ireland, what they do is they choose whether to send you to a grammar school or a technical school or a um, secondary school mm-hmm. through an examination called Eleven Plus. And my father died just bef- weeks before the oh, okay. examination. And I wasn't really in any state to do it, so I didn't do... I shocked the school by not doing nearly as well as I should have. So I was sent to a technical school rather than a grammar school. And I, I, didn't, I really hated it and didn't like the teacher. So <laughs> um, I was at home. They did, we didn't do biology. 
Um, we didn't do uh, really decent languages. There was a lot of things at the high school. I um, didn't do music. Right. Um, so I was always a little bookworm. My teachers didn't know this. They just thought I was really lazy. But I was always at home reading all the time, you know. I worked my way through Euclid's, Euclid's geometry, for instance. Oh, you know, wow. this was, but but at school I was a complete flop because I was just naughty, <laughs> and uh, I, I left school because I was standing outside every class. So I go to school in the morning, stand outside the class because I was being too naughty, mm-hmm. and then when the class came out and moved to the next class, I moved to standing outside the next <laughs> class. And one day I just thought, I think I'll go home. And they never bothered me again. They didn't, they didn't ask where I was. So, um, but but going on from there, so I, I was just a musician for quite a while and also an apprentice electrician. All right. And then I got into, I really got into psychology and philosophy in a big way. I had been reading a lot of things, but I found that's where I, I was. And uh having to use a dictionary course because my education was not great. So I, I had no qualifications, really wanted to be a psychologist. So I went off to England and I became a psychiatric nurse. So I was working with the elderly and schizophrenics and that kind of thing. And I did that for a few years. And, and they said to me, um, you should be at university. Because I I didn't know I was good at examination type things. But when when I, in the, at the end of the first piece of school, uh, I get 98% and the person beneath me get 56 so it was that kind of you know thing and so they said to me you shouldn't really be nursing why don't you go to university but it, that took another few years because I had to go and complete high school again yeah exactly so I had to go back for two years and, and do all my pre-university examinations at what age was this? Uh, that was 26 right um, so I was at school with 16 um, year olds quite fun <laughs> actually uh, they kind of looked up to me, you know. Right. You had a second adolescence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think it was a second adolescence. I, I don't think I'd shaken off my first one but at right. that point. So <laughs> <laughs> I think 26 is still very young, really, yeah. from my perspective now. And so I, I did... Um, I did... The, I, I just went... I'd been... I'd got to the point where, you know, I was dissatisfied with my playing. Uh, I was bored with it. Um, I was bored with being unemployed because every job I took, I was a failure. Mm-hmm. I was just completely useless because I was no, I'm no good with physical things. You know, I had jobs as, I had jobs as a painter, decorator, I had jobs as a bricklaying, I had jobs, you know, shoveling chicken shit into plastic bags. <laughs> and eventually I was offered a job. It got to the point where the Labour Exchange offered me a job sweeping the factory floor. And if I showed, um, if I showed initiative, after two years, I would get to work on the machines. That was the kind of jobs I was going. So when I went back into academia, when I went into academia, it was just like uh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, full-time study. It was warm. I wasn't hurting my hands or anything. And I never looked back, really. And, and I, I actually found something that I could do really well. Yeah. Well, I found two jobs I could do really well, actually, because um, to work my way through college, I trained as a short order chef um, at a local steak restaurant mm-hmm. and I'm a vegetarian <laughs> so I was a steak chef essentially and uh, and I really liked that job and I don't know why it was it was one of the first jobs that I had actually was was really good at for some reason and I didn't even eat meat um, but I, so I worked my way through college w- with that and then I got funded for university so and then just rushed through I, I did a I did my undergraduate degree I had a first class honours, which was rare in those days. And then I 
I did a PhD in about two and a half years. That's and awesome. what I had done was it was an undergraduate degree in psychology. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I really got interested in artificial intelligence in right. a big way. When I was an undergraduate, I really bought into it. And then when I started my PhD, the psychology department bought, bought a Commodore PET, <laughs> a little 32K machine. Yeah. And because before that, I'd had to, I was writing psychology experiments on computer on a PDP-11. Right. And that was, you had to program it using octal keys. <laughs> so that was, that was, you know, it was good learning though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got a Commodore PET and I trained myself to do that. And my first AI program I wrote in that was a, a poet, an artificial poet. Oh. So it generated haiku. Wow. That was quite fun. So my PhD was on reading and I started off looking at orthographic parsing of words really detailed stuff uh-huh. and worked my way through that and eventually ended up with uh, looking at the whole idea that which I always believed in how much knowledge influences our perception now in the field of word recognition the dominant themes were very uh, much about uh, bottom up perception and processing so um, you see a word you form the shapes together you form it into a word you put that up into your lexicon that goes to, through a route to your lexicon where it gets looked up and you do that with each individual word mm-hmm. and you keep all the meanings even if it's an ambiguous word like bank or whatever and then um, you sew together those meanings later and then pragmatics comes in and starts developing it further yeah. and it's very, very useful way to think about cognition because it's, um, it makes it sort of a simpler theory you can build a very simple model. Uh, and I, I believed, and I still believe, that m- my perception of words was influenced by my knowledge of the world. Right, right, right. So that was, that was my thing to demonstrate that. And so I turned to artificial intelligence and I looked at the Yale theories, script theories of AI. And so I, did, I took the Yale theories and converted them into a psychological model that could be tested and falsified. Right. And then did that's what my PhD was experimental work on on those theories. And you were and really optimistic at this time. You were a strong AI proponent. The, I didn't know about strong AI then. This was the seventies. Right. Um, I didn't know about strong AI until the eighties. Mm. But it was, I suppose, it was a strong AI. I don't know about proponent, but I just believe what I read. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, as a psychologist, you're always a bit skeptical of things i mean it's just the way it is it needs to be evidence but i but i i really liked it i thought this was really great stuff and so when i finished my phd i I couldn't get it uh this kind of work was very unpopular in england what's an experimental psychologist looking at ai for you know this isn't right it's completely wrong and um so before i finished my phd i started applying for jobs lecturing jobs in england and didn't um even get a reply uh, they didn't even write and say reject you. Really? And then um, I got a letter from Bob Abelson, who's a professor at Yale, who said, I read a, a conference paper of yours, very interested in that work. I'm coming to England. Can we meet? And he offered me a job. Wow. When he came there. So I couldn't get a job. I hadn't even applied to him. And he didn't even take my references in until after I'd started work with him. You know, <laughs> he, we just hit it off. Yeah. He was a wonderful man. He's di- he's died now, but he... Uh, so I really hit it off with him, and we used to work on, on these sort of... Uh, we worked on a lot of experiments together when I was at Yale, but 
in the end, usually what would happen is we'd end up rolling on the floor, giggling and laughing. So we're generating <laughs> stories. Yeah. And he had a ver- he was a very very funny man. So he would generate ridiculous stories about Lefty the thief, and you know, <laughs> they, they were, it was really interesting stuff. Um, but but when I was at, when I was at Yale, I, I very quickly took a different perspective in artificial intelligence because I tried a lot of the machines. I had access in the United States being there to various AI programs I'd read about, these very famous programs that could do all sorts of things. And they were really flaky and very, very brittle. Right. So one word wrong and they just crash. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't really do what they said in the tin. And a lot of it was kind of crazy. So um, there's quite a famous, well, a very famous roboticist called Rolf Pfeiffer in, in Zurich. And he and I shared an office at Yale. Oh, yeah. And the first paper I published was with him, uh, and that was a critique of AI uh-huh. uh, about how how to write an AI PhD, which is a bit offensive in some ways. <laughs> but you start out with um, on, on with language, you start out with a text file of responses, right. and then you have a set of things, questions you write, and you just type them, and the text file gives you the responses. Mm-hmm. So you start out with that. Now the PhD is trying to make the relationship between that that input and those set of responses obs- as obscure as possible, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and write it up as a thesis. So yeah, it was yeah. kind of that was the kind of nature of the, the paper. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but but I I, I don't discount. Uh, I can't discount strong AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, in of, principle, I guess. No, well, not even in principle. I just don't. I just don't have any evidence either way. And, I mean, mine might be computational, but on the other hand, it, it might not. Mm-hmm. And people will often say, well, either, either you believe it's computational or it's supernatural. Um, and I think there's maybe other, other ways in the middle. <laughs> I've always liked Searle's thing. It's always grabbed me, and a lot of people don't like it when he talked about the idea that, um, you know, you can simulate a thunderstorm, but it doesn't get wet inside the computer. Yeah, and it might be that you could simulate lots of parts of mind, but yet the machine isn't thinking. Precisely, you know, and uh, that runs counter to Turing. I mean, Turing essentially was saying if it, if it quacks, it's a duck. Mm-hmm. But um, what he didn't take into account was was illusion and magic. Yeah, because um, uh, you know I've seen really great musician magicians, and they make you think all sorts of things are happening, but they're not happening. So if I was to trick someone into believing that a machine was was thinking, it doesn't mean the machine was thinking. It could right. just mean that I tricked someone into thinking it. Course, yeah. And one of the problems with AI, really, for me, was was the idea that that mind is still a mystery. As if you talk to any psychologist or philosopher, well, if you talk to a psychologist, they used to just say, "Mind, don't talk to me about that." Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> But because they like the experimental work, so one of the problems for for if you're a psychologist or philosopher is that we don't really know what mind is. It's still a mystery. It's a, still a you know as, as mysterious as as any other part of the universe. More mysterious, probably. It's still a mystery. So an an AI has a habit of exploiting things that we don't know about exactly yeah. and using those. Like for instance, a standard response would be, "But how do I know you're thinking?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's irrelevant, really. It's just like there's a lot of dust kicked up in people's eyes right. uh, like that. Or, or, or you're told, well, people didn't believe that some machine in the past, planes, nobody believed that you could get heavier than air flight, mm-hmm. and we've got it. Uh, therefore, we're going to have AI. Yeah. Uh, but, but therefore, we're going to have you know, 
um, teapots that will take us down wormholes into the centre of the earth, if yeah. I think so. So anything goes, in other words. The singularity so, argument as well. Yeah, but there's a, there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't really call argument, uh, but it's said as if it was an argument, yeah. as if it actually you know said reasoned out something, but it's not actually induction or deduction. It's just statements about the past or the future or yeah. what else is there. But uh, and I, to some extent, I blame Turing for that. Oh right, <laughs> uh, because in his in his 1950 paper in Mind, I should say. Uh, on the on the podcast because not everybody knows who he is. He talked about the idea that he could not uh, support his idea that there could be a thinking machine. He had no evidence for it whatsoever. He said. Mm-hmm. So what his stance was to take all the objections that he could find and knock those down. Yeah, and he did that deliberately, and that was fine. Then we had, there was three computers on the planet or something, you know. <laughs> so the, of course he had no evidence. Yeah. Um, and Turing, you know, I have such admiration for Turing. I mean, Turing is a genius. So he then sets up a kind of empirical test called the Turing, the Turing test. Well, he didn't call it the Turing test. Um, <laughs> but where you have to try and tell the difference between a machine and an alt machine. Um, he said it would, would only, um, the, the processing power they had then was enough. And essentially, I think if you, when, you, when you work it out, he wanted something like about um, 50 megabytes. Right. <laughs> and we should be able to do it by then. So his idea was that it's the program that was the important thing, yeah. not the speed of the computer and not the processing anything else. And, and that's been sidelined to a certain extent in AI. But then he said, so he puts this test forward, but he puts it forward in such a way that it's not a falsification if you can't do it. Yeah. Because some future machine might be able to do it. Yeah. So this kind of, to me, this sort of, he wrong-footed science um, but it was early days, but now here we are, 60 years later, and people are still using the same mode of argument. Mm-hmm. So the, rather than, as an experimentalist, I want evidence. But what I find all the time from AI people is they try to say to me, well, what do you suggest and what else could it be? And that's not for me to say. Right. Uh, and I like to use the analogy, uh, Bertrand Russell used this um, idea when he was talking about religion, that... You know, there might be teacups orbiting the sun. Uh, And you can say this to me. He was talking about religion, actually. But um, it's not for me to go looking for that to disprove you. It's up to you to to verify it to me, to prove it to me. So for me, the thing about AI is I'm prepared to... I'm sitting on a fence. I'm an agnostic, a very sceptical one. But if somebody gives me evidence that it happens then I'll believe it. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it's just idle speculation. And it has implications for me, this idle speculation now. Yeah. Then you get the kind of Penrose stuff as well, that there's something mystical here, and we have this mystical quantum physics here. So maybe this one mystery can explain the other mystery and that kind of stuff. Yes, there's all that kind of thing. But for me, what what happened was when I I get into the the ethical dimension, which was like, um, I suppose, about six years ago when I'm looking at the various robot ethics, Mm -hmm. and particularly the military... And now, because I never was too bothered about the, the arguing too much about AI and its place and, and what it could really do. But now suddenly you have a military who have been fed this stuff about strong AI. Yeah. And now they're developing and they're developing weapons accordingly, thinking that machines are going to be able to think or reason or be, be um, 
moral or whatever. Right. And they, I don't know if in a thousand years' time that will be the case or 200 years' time it will be the case, but it's not the case now and I don't see it on the horizon. And so it's become more concrete for me now and that's now a concern, so I have to argue against this. Yeah. Uh, although I don't argue against it, again, I just say, well, you know, I don't have evidence, so we can't rely on it. Don't rely on this. It's a research question. Yeah. Um, the idea that uh, mind is computational is an assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, most of my working life, I've gone with that assumption. That's what I work within. I was a cognitive psychologist and, you know, a a cognitive scientist and an AI person. So I I had that assumption as well. But I was always aware of the fact that it is an assumption. It's an untestable assumption. It's like protected assumption, as it were. Um, So so I don't know what to do about that. But in the meantime, we have um, military talking about autonomous weapons and autonomous weapon systems. And... You know, I've talked to people from the Pentagon who've come to see me to talk about possible research projects, which I don't take, but I discuss with them anyway. Yeah. Um, this was some years ago. And I had one guy who was a, he was a surgeon they sent to speak to me and talk to me about doing um, maybe something medical, withdrawing soldiers off the battlefield or the finding. He actually wanted me to develop robotics to find people, bodies, so that they could bring them back. Oh, right. And not dead bodies, living, but, you know, bring back soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And I thought about that. I thought, that's a really good good project. But when I thought about it, of course, you could just as easily use it to find enemy people and blow them up, you know, or whatever. True, yeah. So I, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't take that, that kind of work. But what struck me about this with this surgeon was he was a really strong AI person. He yeah. believed now that machines can think already. Right. And the trouble is he's going around with a very large pocket full of cash, mm-hmm. Like, you know, he was talking to me about a project of a million dollars. So he's got a pocket really bristling with cash. And he goes to people's labs and he says, you know, uh, and he talks this strong AI stuff. And they just nod and agree and, you know, take the cash and use it for the lab. I don't blame them for taking the cash and using it for the lab. But I do say to my fellow scientists and roboticists, the one thing I require of you, take your military funding if you must. I mean, it's not, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. But for God's sake, tell the truth. Right. about the limitations of what you're doing. Don't deceive these guys because there's life and death at stake here, yeah. you know, in, in their belief. So I had real trouble trying to get him to think that a machine was not was not really uh, a thinking yet. And so um, he was a surgeon. So eventually I said to him, look, let me, let me forget about that you're here for the Pentagon. You're a surgeon. Let me take you as a medical person right. to think about this. Yeah. And I want you to think about a single cell. And think about a robot and look at the difference in, in the complexity of these two systems. Now, how many robots do you think it would take to get the complexity of a single cell? And he sat there for quite a while. I mean, it's not really that deep a question, uh, but he sat there for quite a while, steam coming out of his ears. And he said, well, he said, you could fill New York City with robots. And I don't think it would get that kind of complexity. So, <laughs> so he was beginning to melt on the topic. Right, right. But if you're a non-technical person, like a military person or a politician or something, and robotics professors uh, say things to you about you know what what's happening or what's going to be the future, then you have to believe them. Why would you not? This is a professor of the subject. You know they 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 know the subject, and so I now see a very strong role in myself being a professor in the subject as well, countering that. And they might not believe me, but at least they know there's more than one side to the argument, and that's that's kind of important. Right.
but they want to hold on to this strong AI idea because it's more, much more sexy than the weak AI in a sense. Yeah, of course, and, and also it means you can make killing machines that can go out and do all sorts of things for you, and you don't kill any, there's no soldiers being killed or anything else. But really, I mean, when I first um, first got onto the military side of the ethics, it's not the only thing I do, but, but the, when I got onto the military side, it was because journalists asked me questions about it. And I knew I'd heard about a couple of the military robots, but I wasn't, you know, sure about everything. And so I went off and spent six months reading all the military plans, you know, the thousands of pages of plans because it was pretty dull stuff. But robotics, and it left me shocked. Oh, in what sense? The naivety. Oh right, yeah. Um, there was a big push all the time, and the naivety has kind of gone now. I mean, there's, they're, they're more sneaky now because there's more people like me speaking out. <laughs> but, but the big push was towards developing autonomy. There was talk about swarm swarming the enemy with, with autonomous robots working on the ground and in the air together. And and the the one thing that was left out of all of this, and that's the one thing that I, I took forward and pushed really hard, was there no AI system in the world can do the discrimination between a civilian and a combatant um, unless the civilians were prepared or the combatants were prepared to wear some sort of RFID tag or big purple coat or something <laughs> you know what I mean it's, it's very and they're not going, insurgents aren't going to do that so this discrimination is it's the the core of the Geneva Convention really mm-hmm. yeah. that you must be able to discriminate between civilians and, and combatants and without that having an autonomous killer robot is is ridiculous because it's not going to be able to do that discrimination. And that is a very hard thing. And the second plank of the of the uh, Geneva Convention was the notion of proportionality, which is the, you can kill civilians, essentially you can, it's supposed to be the law of double intention from St. Augustine, but it isn't. In fact, it's saying you can't, it's essentially saying, you can strike if there's a high probability of there being civilians. Knowledge, you know you're going to kill civilians. Yeah. You just haven't targeted them, but you know you're going to kill them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you don't intend to. But you are intending to, really, I think. But you can, so you can kill so many, but it's got to be in direct proportion to the military advantage. Now, if you have philosophers thinking about uh, what on earth is military advantage or anybody thinking about it, it's really, really hard. It's very much a human judgment it's something that a commander who's very experienced in the field has to decide. And generals tell me that, you know, you get people who make a decision, but they might make a different decision in the afternoon or depending on what mood they're in, which is not, not great. But it's a very human thing to do. You're weighing up all the odds and you're weighing up things like, you know, if I was to kill them, um, how would that affect my relationship with this village? Would they all become insurgents? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things going into the equation. Now, um, so for me, it's really, really difficult. Now, Ron Arkin from Georgia Tech says that he can solve the proportionality problem. Yeah. Um, but he's talking about the wrong problem. Right. Um, he says he can sort it, he can solve it because um, he could, for instance, have software that manipulated a drone, chose the right weapon to minimize collateral damage. Mm-hmm. So that's his idea of the proportionality problem. Uh, okay. But that's what I call the easy proportionality problem. And there is software called Bugsplat that does that now. So it will help you choose the right weapon that will minimize the spread of the collateral damage. But for instance, um, supposing I'm attacking a, I'm, I'm doing a missile strike 
on a factory or some installation next door to a school. And there are a thousand children in that school. So they use bug spat, it chooses the best weapon and it only kills a hundred of those children. I mean, that's not the point of proportionality. The hard proportionality decision is actually deciding whether to do it in the first place. Right, yeah. Whether to strike, is this worthwhile? What is the military advantage of this? And there's no machine that can do that kind of reasoning. Mm-hmm. And that's the other problem I have with the discrimination problem. Even if we did have the visual systems, which we don't have in AI, and the sensing systems that could actually do the discrimination, what we don't have is common sense reasoning and battlefield awareness. Mm. So it's not always appropriate to kill someone because they're the enemy or an insurgent. You just go, go killing everybody. As I say, it might bring the whole village down on you or whatever. Or uh, there's a case where there's some Marines who trapped some insurgents in an alleyway. They pointed machine guns at them and the, they notice they're carrying a coffin. They take off their helmets, bow their heads, and lower the machine guns right, and let right. them pass. Yeah. Was a robot would just kill them because otherwise, and if a if a robot was programmed not to shoot anybody carrying a coffin, every insurgent would just carry a coffin. Yeah, you know. But but that's just used to illustrate the. I don't know if it's infinite, but it's a very very large number of possible circumstances that can arise that we couldn't predict in advance, and so I think that this is a really wrong way to go. Um. But it's it's very difficult as I've got further and further into it and studied the law on this and how we can you know ban it. I mean, there are a lot of legal instruments in international humanitarian law that should stop this. But the problem is that um, there's Article Thirty Six, for instance, which says that you've got to even un- you know if you've got a, a weapon and you're worried about it, it has to show that you can discriminate using it. And this testing has to go on through its entire development. There's nothing like that for the development of things like the fully autonomous X-47B that's going to be in American carriers in 2015. No testing at all. And the reason for this, they can get around all of this, is because an autonomous drone or an autonomous robot is not a weapon. Until you put arms on it, it's not a weapon. Right. You can test all the autonomy you want. You can even get it to select targets because that's not illegal. That's just surveillance. Mm-hmm. So finding people, it could be finding people so that you could send in soldiers and arrest them or something. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you can do all of the de- all of the development, and then at some point, add a weapon, right? And that you're away. And that point would happen. You know, there's a war and it was needed, mm-hmm. and that's quite likely to be the case as well because, um, well. The reasons for autonomy, it's not just people playing with robots. It's because at the moment, drones are becoming the weapon of choice for everybody in the world, really. It's, it's big, it's proliferating to... You know, I've tracked 51 countries myself that have the technology now. Right. Uh, China have now got armed drones, and they're going to put them on the market. They say they've identified a hole in the market. <laughs> the US is only selling them to uh, closest allies in Europe, oh, they armed are. ones. Yeah. And Israel won't sell the armed ones. So China said, was a hole in the market. So, you know, we've got them. Let's, let's go for that. So there's going to be a lot of these. So they're really, really pushing it. But the problem is that at the moment, you're fighting a low-tech groups of people like the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, who are doing extraordinarily well against such high-tech countries, yeah. it has to be said. You know, they really are. Uh, Technology is not everything. But you're fighting them, so there's a very permissive airspace. If you're fighting a very sophisticated nation, and by that, the code word in, in the American plans is really China or Russia, the first thing you're going to do is jam 
the GPS, jam the signals from right. satellites, yeah. jam radio, mm -hmm. so you won't be able to fly these things remotely. Yeah. So that's why you need them to be autonomous. Ah, I see, yeah. And manufacturers will still say, like BAE Systems in the UK, uh, who have got autonomous drones, will argue with me, yes, but there'll always be somebody on the loop for making lethal decisions. Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't make sense when you look at the notion of we're having we need to get autonomous drones because there's going to be complete jamming of the signals yeah, exactly. so how are you going to have someone on the loop to make the lethal decisions uh in a radio interview i did uh, for the bbc uh there was another man in the program with me uh queller he's called he's a uh con congressman in the united states and he's co-chair of what's called the unmanned systems caucus so they're in charge of the kind of unmanned systems and we were on talking about the X-47B, this autonomous plane that they're developing. And he said, well, of course, there's going to be a man in the loop to program it mm -hmm. yeah. for particular missions. So th that becomes really kind of a a crazy thing to say. Yeah. I mean, it's only a congressman, so, so it's only the politics. But it's quite interesting the way this is changing war in a funny way um, in terms of in, in, in the philosophical liter literature around this. There's quite a lot of discussion about the notion of a moral buffer. Mm -hmm. With autonomous ones, there's you know it's an incredible moral buffer, but with the uh, drones at the moment, you've got people sitting in Creech Air Force Base in Nevada, and they're flying a drone over Pakistan, seven thousand miles away. Well, actually, they'd be in Langley, Virginia. That's the CIA flying them over Pakistan, the Yemen, Somalia. Mm. So there's this big distance, and people say that that means it's easier to kill and you could be careless about it. And there's quite a lot of discussion about this moral buffer and the military kind of respond by saying, in actual fact, it's more stressful for these people than a normal pilot mm -hmm. because they um, get to see the aftermath of what they've done on big screens. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, they also live with their families. So they're flying around all day killing and then they go to his parents' evening in the yeah. evening and things. But there's an easy way around that is you just keep them on the base all the time. Yeah. So you could you could do that. Uh, but but this this it's not it strikes me that these young pilots are not the real problem. They're on the killing floor. So the moral buffer about there is really about command and control. Who's controlling them? Who's allowing them to do this? You know, is there a JAG lawyer, judge advocate, general's lawyer watching the video feed and saying, yes, you can do this strike? So they're, if they're being commanded like that, it doesn't matter whether they've got a moral buffer. I mean, the big thing is, we, as countries, we want our, our soldiers to be able to kill people. So we train them in that. So that's what that's, what that's about. Yep. But the moral buffer I'm worried about, which is just coming, this is just what I'm thinking now and I'm just writing about now, is the moral buffer of the political elite. Right. Because they feel that it's such an accurate weapon and the figures don't show that. I mean, it, it's a massive collateral damage. Um, but the political elite, like George Bush had 53 drone strikes, but CIA drone strikes in Pakistan over the five years from 2005 to 2009. Obama's had 283 in three years, so he's really gone for them in a big way. Yeah. But it's almost as if you've got now the commander, the elite political commander is now at the head of the army, charging, leading the charge on a horse. Right because they've got these drones and they can actually, they're much closer to the battlefield. And it's like some sort of a toy. It is like a game to them, I think. It becomes that kind of Game Boy mentality. And Obama, who's a politician I have a lot of time for, has, you know, he's made jokes about drones. 
with the Jonas Brothers, you know, saying, well, my daughters really like you, but I have two words for you, predator drone. And everybody laughs, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's an said, odd kind of joke to make. Gun, yeah, it's an odd kind of joke to make when, when people are, you know, children are being, 300 children have been killed so far in yeah. this conflict with drones. And it's an odd kind of joke to make when you've got this kind of thing, you know, Absolutely. very funny, but, you know, it's like making a joke at a funeral about, yeah. you know. It's, it's just a, a tasteless thing. So, so that's my real worry: is, is that kind of thing and how that's changing warfare. And they can hover for twenty six hours, so it's not like sending a missile. And people say, well, that makes it more accurate. But the, again, the figures are not testifying to that because if you're striking a building, it doesn't matter how high resolution your camera is. It just, all it tells you is that's the building. Yeah. And what you've got then is heat signatures from within inside the building, so you can see movement. And that's why mistakes have been made at funerals and weddings and that kind of thing, because you're you're attacking a building with this moving heat. Who are those people? Goodness knows. Yeah. It's a load of cattle. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you can't really tell. But fighting against this development, uh, how, what do you think about the argument that this is inevitable, this is going to happen anyway? Uh, so we just need to get in there and try to make them as moral as we can. You could say that about anything. Why, why fight against everything? But, you, you know, you, feel, you fight about it because you have a moral conscience about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's why you fight about it, because you think this is wrong. I don't care if it's going to be inevitable. But it, as I say to audiences sometime, war is inevitable as long as we believe it's inevitable. Yeah. That's the only th- thing that makes it inevitable. But we have a number of things, for instance, I believe that there are legal instruments to try and, and do this. I've looked at most of them. And there's, for instance, there's the CCW, which is conven- uh, Certain Conventional Weapons Treaty. And that bans things like blinding laser And it banned that before it was ever used, and gases. But then the other route, which I think is probably the route that I'd like to go go down, which is uh, the route that was used for banning cluster munitions and landmines. Mm -hmm. And that community are now very interested in autonomous robots. They've been won over to that, another indiscriminate weapon, just like cluster munitions or landmines. And the process there is that rather than using current legal instruments, you, uh, you, you get a cluster of NGOs and they put feelers out and keep looking around for, for a friendly government. Uh, well, for a friendly ambassador, young ambassador who wants to make a name for himself yeah, yeah. and wants to take on something new and will go and see his boss and say, look, you know, we can do something new here. We can actually do some good for the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they will host uh, uh, and other nations to come along and then you, it takes a few years and you, you gradually get them to sign a treaty on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really worrying because there's not even any international discussion about it. Yeah. And that's a big worry to me. And the other thing that's never discussed, and I don't understand why it's not discussed, is this idea of um, if you have autonomous robots, they will have an algorithm on board that will be very secret. So nobody's going to tell them what the program is. You're not going to tell your enemies, here's my algorithm, because, you know, they're going to, there's going to be all sorts of things like air-to-air combat, and, you know, it's going to get very, very tricky yeah. pretty quickly, and developing with the billions that are being put into it. So you have two machines or more with complex algorithms on board. You don't know what the other complex algorithms are. It's totally unpredictable. I couldn't tell you what's going to happen. It might be something good, like they just all go off to the moon or something you know, <laughs> together and have a picnic. But I think it's likely to be in some sort of disaster. Yeah. And I searched and searched and searched for some way of explaining this to the military. 
and p- political people, you know, because complex algorithm, what, what's this about? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Yeah. So I found an example, which is, um, it was on Amazon booksellers. And there was two booksellers, uh, Proofnath and Border Books. And they had s- simple algorithms. And what um, Border Books did was they looked around the internet for the other prices of all the other books, the same book. So you take a book, second-hand book, used book, and you look around the internet, see what the, the highest price is, and they made it a few percent less than the highest price. Mm-hmm. And then Prothnath had a different algorithm. If they didn't own a book, they didn't have it in stock, and somebody wanted to order it from them, they searched the internet uh, all the time. So they, they would do searches all the time for books that were not in stock. They would find the most expensive version of that book and make it slightly higher in price. So that was just as simple as that. These two algorithms get caught up with a book called The Bee, okay. The Life of the Bee, which is some obscure biology book out of print, and it usually sells for $50. Okay. Within a week, it was on sale for $13,800,000. <laughs> you know? So here's two not-too-complicated algorithms interacting, yeah. and that's the kind of unpredictability, because neither of them knew. Um, and they've not said that this was the case, but we've taken people have taken the data and worked worked it out. You see, because right. they watched it going up in price every day for a week. None of, they didn't notice that it was going up in price. Nobody bought it, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, so that's the kind. Those are the kinds of complexity issues that I don't know. Philosophers aren't really dealing with too much, although they will when you bring it up to them. But the, you know, philosophers aren't technologists necessarily. Though there's some. Be good people who are Peter Asaro, for instance, is is both as well, um, and so it they can be the trouble with the philosophers that they can do brilliant work on this, but then they meet a military contractor who will try and knock them down by talking googly gook about the technology and maybe total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't know the technology, what do you say? Yeah, it's that thing again. But if you know the technology, you can just say, look, you know, stop talking nonsense to me. I mean, I have gone around military fairs and just asked questions, not saying I'm a roboticist. And the rubbish I'm being told is incredible. And I don't say anything. I just let them tell me about the brain is in here and, you know, right. its mind is doing this. And, you know, so all this complete and utter nonsense that I'm being told. Uh, and I don't look like somebody who's going to be going buying the weapons either. This is just standard sort of salesman spiel. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's quite, it's, it's really, really of concern, really big concern technology but you've had some direct interaction with the military as well do you do you feel that they take this side of the story seriously that uh, they are concerned about these things and they want to yes. listen to ethicists yes they are strangely yeah as i say i had nothing to do with the military at all until five years ago and my view of the military is really quite different now than it was then mm-hmm. uh, my naive view when i said nothing to do with the military i mean my father served in the war and all my uncles served in the second world war right. so when i was born in 1948 Three years after the war, it was all all that was it was you know it was everywhere. It was all present. Mm-hmm. We still had food rationing until 1954, so you know it was a, the war was all around me. And so I had that kind of interaction. I was born into a in a state that was specially built for soldiers who had come home military. So lots of people with one leg and all that kind right. of thing. So it was all military families and extremely respectful to each other and a very you know it was a very pleasant sort of thing. But nothing much more except uh, my wife uh, is from a military family. Her father was a naval captain and her grandfather was an admiral. Uh, so I, I knew them very well and got, liked them a lot. And the, the British military are very 
extremely gentlemanly. Oh, yeah. So if they kill, they kill gentle, <laughs> with a gentlemanly way. Yeah. Lovely people to talk to. But but the military, are, it's quite surprising. Are you know It's easy to think when you're on the outside, oh, these evil people doing all this killing or whatever. But that's what we're paying them for as taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and I'm as guilty as everybody else. You know, we're all in this together. When we talk about killing people in Iraq, I take it personally mm-hmm. that I am doing this. Right. I don't think it's they are doing this. Mm-hmm. I am doing it. I'm part of this society. And if I don't speak out, then, you know, I'm as, just, I'm as guilty as anybody else. And even if I do speak out, I'm still paying my taxes into this. That's a good point. And uh, so, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very bad thing. But anyway, so I talked to the military. And, you know, they don't want to kill civilians. I mean, that's a mess for them. Yeah. They're going to get into trouble. And nowadays, there's the court of CNN, you know, it's on the media, and they don't want scandals. I mean, they don't... Nobody wants to take a drone and attack a civilian convoy. It's not that they're thinking, ah, we can kill civilians here and things. <laughs> because it gets all over the press, it's very embarrassing. People lose their jobs, you know. People won't get promoted. They'll be disgraced, and it might not be tried or anything, but, you know... You try and get promotion now after that. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, you know, I find a lot of the military, maybe it's just the ones I meet, are, are very ethical people. Right. The officers, certainly. And uh, both not wanting to kill people and also concerned about the weapons they use. But the trouble for them is that, and what they will tell me is, we don't want war. Um, I'm sure there's some military dictators around the place who love war. <laughs> we know that. But, but they will say, we don't want war, but if you, if, you, if you start a war and we're an instrument... So we get sent by the politicians to go and fight that war. Yeah. We want, we're like a football team. We want to win. You know, we're not going to lose. But one of the things they've got to do, it's very, very important for a commander. The, the main thing is your objective, your mission. And the second priority is to protect your men, the men in your care. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people telling stories about men that have been hurt, very senior officers, brigadier general, or something, and tears come to their eyes. I mean, they take it very seriously. Right. They do not want to lose any of their men. They're bonded together. They're a fighting team. You know, they're all together. And so if there's a, a weapon or a system available that's going to save those men, that will be used. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that they want to kill the civilians, and it might not be accurate, but in some ways you're not going to have your men killed. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of discussion. I mean, I had great, I've had great discussions at the best place. had a lot in America as well, but the, the best place I've had discussions is France. Oh, right. And they're always translated yeah. in simultaneous, like, you know, the UN or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't speak French. But um, I've just, they really align with what I think in, in military ethics, you know. And I, I talk a lot to the Army and the Air Force. And the first time was in was in Paris, at the big army headquarters in Paris, and I talked to uh, senior officers, and the Minister of Defence was there as well. And I was taken aback by them. I mean, they haven't got a great record, just like Britain. Things in the past, you know, everybody's been really evil, uh, but very senior people saying, "I'd rather lose a whole platoon or a whole regiment than kill a single civilian." Wow really taking it seriously, very much taking the whole idea of the drones seriously. We don't want these armed drones. Uh, the last thing I did was at Sancerre this year. I'm doing so many of these wretched talks, I can't remember. I think it was the end of last year. And it was had the head of the army and the second command of UN NATO. They're all French. And they sounded like... Mem- I, I have an organisation called ICRAC, uh, International Committee for Robot Arms Control, but when they gave their f- a closing address, they could have been members of that committee, to be honest. Oh, wow. you know? So they really 
talking about these things are not discriminate. We definitely do not want them. And the the Air Force do not want drones at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of that's to do with honour. Right. So I don't care what it's for. I mean, you know, whatever, just to get them stopped. But it's the honour code of, you know, we joined to fight for our country. We became fighter pilots. We don't want to sit behind desks with a joystick. That's not killing people abroad. That's not what we, it's not what the warrior does. And they, they will put their hand to their, their chest. And uh, But very, very into the warrior thing. It's quite uh, quite incredible. Um, I, the, the place in the, the uh, Air Force uh, base that I was, that was on, it's near uh, Lyon. And they're really into valor in a really big way. And they have this special big room. It's, it's an outside, it's a hallway with stairs and marble pillars. And none of the officer cadets are allowed into that area until they graduate. Right. And there's the marble pillar, you notice it's all chipped. And what happens is the whole ceremony, the graduation ceremony, is done in complete silence. And their symbol is this dagger. And someone stands and hits the marble pillar with the dagger. And that's why it's chipped. And every hit, they move. So it's all regimented. So on the tick of the dagger, they move forward and get their commission in complete silence. Oh, okay. So it's a very kind of honour-driven yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. And uh, I, I can appreciate that. I don't like war and I don't want to be part of it. But, I can, but you know, another view I have, which may be an odd, odd view of humanity, is that I think that anything that any human is capable of doing, we're all capable of doing. It's just, it's just a view I have. I mean, there might be many people who disagree with that, but I, I think we are all capable, given the right circumstances, we're all capable of the same thing. I mean, okay, there's there you might have psychopaths who are completely mentally crazy, and you know, but then again, you know, you could have a brain tumor and do the same. Yeah. You know, so so I, I have this belief that I have to be sympathetic to fellow humans and think, well, that could be me, given the right circumstances born in this certain place I could be a fighter pilot or something maybe I haven't got the skills for that but I could have been on the front line yeah. you know wanting to go out and fight for my country and being full of valor or something you know it could easily have been me as much as anybody else but that's not my role speaking of age to be a bit anachronistic as well uh, because you were if I get it right 20 uh, around 68 were, yeah 20 I was in fact you were you also part of the countercultural anti-Vietnam War movement? Uh, yeah, but in, in Northern Ireland, we weren't really, you know, too involved in that. Right. <laughs> but I moved to England in 1969, then I got much more involved yeah, in, yeah. In, in it, you know. I really liked the music, Country Joe and the Fish, The Grateful Dead and all yeah. those people, so I didn't really understand Vietnam. We had it in our televisions a lot. I was very naive about that sort of thing then. Okay. I used to just watch bits on television, but... Uh, I know a lot more about it now. And I, again, here's quite an interesting thing about humanity. I was at a conference in Ohio at the, at the National Peace Center in the United States. And a lot of the audience were Vietnam vets, so from like you know, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were suffering from, still suffering from post-traumatic stress. Right. Uh, and we had panels of various sorts. And I just hit it off with these guys. They hugged me to death, actually. There's a lot of hugging going on at this conference. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this guy that I got to know really well, this guy, Hugh. And he, when I first saw him, he looked quite scary. He was massive. He was about six foot four, six foot five, but really big built, yeah. really muscular, totally shaved head, arrived there in his Harley Davidson. <laughs> um, He's actually a, a post-traumatic stress therapist, <laughs> but you know he didn't look like that. He looked like a really tough man, 
And he got up at the... Pla- I mean, it was one person after another getting up. It was like a sort of confessional thing. And he said that in Vietnam, his job was a helicopter gunner. Right. And he just had to kill everything he could see. Oh. He said he killed a lot of wildebeests as well, so he just was sitting there with the machine gun. And he said that, you know, honestly, he was so high in heroin that he actually enjoyed it and he suffered for it for the rest of his life he's completely screwed up you know? oh there were Viet Cong at the conference as well Oh, so they were, they were really lovely they were um, you know we don't blame you at all we blame your government if we were in your role we'd have done the same yeah. they were really nice people but the thing that came out in this was all this talk about post-traumatic stress and, and the number of suicides there have been something they were saying they were I don't know I haven't checked out the figures but they were saying twice as many people have committed suicide who served in the Vietnam War than were actually killed in the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. And I know the suicide figures for, for the Afghan and Iraq War afterwards are very high as well. Yeah. And to me, I know it sounds odd, but to me that gives me a lot of hope for mankind. Right. It means we're not all just a bunch of bloody killers. You know, people will kill in those circumstances. They can be trained to kill and stuff. But the fact that they suffer the consequences for the rest of their lives shows to me how deep humanity is, that we don't need to have wars. Right. We are actually, we don't like it when we do this. But somehow we get together in a mob mentality. Because to me, a war is just, um, it's just a bigger gang. (laughs) And it's legitimized. You know, we can... We don't have we don't have death penalty in the UK, yeah, at all. We don't we don't believe in killing at all. You know we don't believe in execution, mm-hmm. but you call it a war, and now we've got permission because we have laws of war. So as long as we kill according to the laws of war, never mind the morality. You know the laws of war are supposed to be about morality, the Geneva Convention, etc. And there's some overlap, but they're not moral laws. Exactly, and and it's it's not, you know. You can, uh, this whole thing about you know well, at the beginning of the Iraq War there was a it was twenty nine civilians you could kill, up to twenty nine, but any more than that you had to go for higher level permission, but in an attack you could kill up to twenty nine civilians. Why twenty nine? It's just it was an I have no idea why they chose that number. So if it was thirty you'd have to ask for permission. I I, I don't know. I've not seen this in the press, but I've had it taught me by two generals. And there's a lot of things, and Waltz talks about this a lot. Yeah. You know, he's he's very good on this. He talks a lot about the idea in Vietnam, which you see, according to the laws of war, it's legitimate if somebody fires at you uh, from a crowd, it's legitimate for you to fire back. And in Vietnam, typically, uh, a sniper in the hillside or a few snipers would pin down U.S. troops and start shooting at them. They would respond by napalm from a plane. <laughs> Yeah. take out the whole hillside, call in an airstrike and do that, knowing that there were lots of villages there. Say it was legitimate under the laws of war, but as Walsh said, it might be, but it's totally immoral. You know, yeah. We're paying these soldiers, You know, they've, they've taken on a professional role, they're out there to kill people, so really he says that they should be sneaking, trying to find ways of getting to the sniper and being prepared to take losses on their own side rather than kill hundreds of civilians. Yeah. Um, but but in some of the some very robust discussions from military people saying you know are you serious what are you talking about you know I'm not going to risk my men for a load of people on a hill you know you know some sort of goops or whatever they whatever sort of yeah. derogatory term they use you know yeah. so they've demonised these people as being so non-human but this is again in the in the military you you get um, you get some really right wing people a lot of reasonable people but you get these really right wing who are you know. 
uh, my country comes first, you know, and not just defending my country, but my country's national interests come first and everybody else is a bastard, essentially, yeah, yeah. if they're not living in my country. You know? right. And that's the most dangerous mentality that you, that you have around. What do you see as the most important question in robotetics? Because there are loads of... Sometimes I feel like people are talking a bit past each other as well, with all these terms, moral agent this and moral patient that. And, and so yes. On. Uh, so sometimes those discussions seem a bit uh, internal, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about moral agency and things, and that's not something that I, I even you know want to discuss or talk about, really. Mm-hmm. Except in the sense that, you know, when philosophers talk about... I have no objection to philosophers uh, using robotics or AI as a kind of foil. And I think it's a great thing to get at humanity mm-hmm. and what it's what it means to be human and, yeah. and reason about mind and reason about human by take it's no different than talking about zombies mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. So philosophers want to use it and I get the feeling sometimes, sometimes I don't always understand because people a lot of philosophy is really about understanding the history of the subject. And so uh, you, when you're talking, you're making little moves or twists on some theme that other philosophers will recognise. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a, a trained philosopher, I mean, I've, I've done some philosophy at university, but not, 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 I wouldn't call myself a philosopher, except an old-fashioned kind. Right. You know, if I, if I suddenly came into being and there was no philosophy, I'd be a philosopher, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but a lot of it's about that that kind of work, and so, and and also. Um, you know, if you're a young philosopher, you, you get a job or you want a job, you want tenure, you have to really appeal to the academic subjects. I mean, your concern is not really about AI. Yeah. It's about the meaning and what what, the, what to attribute to these things. So for me, I don't talk about moral agency of robotics at all because it's so remote. And as I say, it might happen. It could happen in 100 years or so. I mean, I, I do think it will be that kind of order of magnitude if there's any kind of... Yeah very intelligent machine or whatever. I mean, I, I I don't see it happening at all, really. I, I'm not sure. But certainly centuries we're talking about. Yeah. Why is everybody always in such a rush? It always has to be in the next 25 years or the next 10 years. And all that does is it's wrong every time. There's actually a principle, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, they did some research on this and they found that people who predict grand things to happen always predict that within their own lifetimes. Within their own lifetime. So if you're 50, you predict this is going to happen in 20 years. If you're 20, you say this is going to happen in ah. 50 years. And so. so this is why I always look at within the next five years, probably. I hadn't <laughs> realized unconsciously <laughs> if that was the case. That's, it, it, it is an interesting thing, though. But it's just that it's happened in AI since the very beginning. Yeah. Right from the very beginning, they've made outrageous predictions. Yeah. Like, you know, all household chores will be carried out by robots by 1970. Mm-hmm was a big drive and people really believed it yeah and it's like this thing one of the one of i i really like um hubert dreyfus who was really against my field when i was really excited about it but i liked his writing he's a phenomenologist at berkeley yeah. but he he wrote the book what computers can't do and something he wrote really got me it made me pause and think he said the trouble with you ai guys is that you're climbing a tree thinking that you're on your way to the moon exactly yeah and AI is like that, you know, you get, that's what I mean by it could really surprise us because what you get is this kind of sudden, something happens like computers get faster or smaller or some, or or you get better sensors or whatever, and you get this sudden explosion. So you're doing tons of new stuff and it looks like, oh, this is all happening and things, but it ceilings out yeah, because it never comes out the way you think. I mean, the, it went on, all the, the early uh, robotics work was all about, trying to make a thinking, human-like thinking being. Mm-hmm. 
And that wasn't working out too well. It led to extremely slow-moving robots. You know, you move one metre, spend 15 minutes doing planning, reasoning, you know, all this kind of thing, then move one metre, so it was taking forever. Rodney Brooks comes along and says, well, we should be more like insects and we just go more directly from sensor to motor with a little bit of programming in the middle, uh, his subsumption architecture. And that led to incredible developments very quickly. You now had machines running about the place. You have vacuum cleaners. It's all from his development there, Um, which wasn't totally original, actually. Um, um, It, you know... Some of his diagrams from subsumption architectures, Frank Owen Gunn's biology book in the 1944 has a very similar outline. Oh, right. And Brooks is also inspired by Gray Walter. Yeah. And that was a strange thing because Gray Walter, I don't know if you know about Gray Walter, I mean, he, he developed autonomous robots in 1948. Wow. And they were collective, working together. Oh, wow. From just no computer, of course. There were no computers there. So he, he was a a scientist, a neuroscientist, sort of. He developed, he did a lot of work for the EEG machine. Mm -hmm. But this was just a side thing, so he just decided to make some robots because he wanted to look at mechanical life. You know, he wanted to get simple explanation. You make it very, very simple. And there's all these complex things, like Breitenberg took this further later, but there's all these complex behaviours that really have an underlying simplistic behaviour. I even got to the point of showing that his robot had consciousness. Because he had a light that came on, um, when it uh, w- when it's when it saw another light, the light went off. Okay. <laughs> so he had a mirror, reflective mirror, yeah. and the robot came along with its light on, saw the mirror, saw itself in the mirror. The light went out, so it turned away. The light came on, it turned again, so it did a little dance in front of the mirror. <laughs> so he said it showed it was conscious, but he didn't really think it was conscious in the way I think of consciousness. Oh, he was of kind of making fun with the whole idea of. Yeah. You know, what is consciousness? Uh, he also, he also, he was, <laughs> in my research on Grey Walter, he was also uh, really into sex. Okay. <laughs> uh, several wives. He went off with the, uh, the greengrocer. He swapped wives with the greengrocer, for instance, <laughs> but swapped on a permanent basis. And he believed that EEG could tell you this. So one of the things in his robots, Elmer and Elsie, he was looking at flirtation and sexual behavior. Right. So very, very simple stuff. This was in 1948. Now, along comes computers. Da-da! He had two tubes or valves, yeah. so analog computer, and can do all these incredible things, actually. It was quite... And recharge themselves. I mean, they went back to the hutch. All these things that modern robotics discovered in the 80s. Yeah. AI came along. No, it's all about big mind now. We're going to build minds and intelligence. And that wiped out his kind of work, and we didn't see that again until Brooks came out with it in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we'd stayed with Walter in the first place, we'd have made much faster progress. But, of course, in the early days, robots couldn't have the computer on board. Yeah. It was to the side, and they had a, a string, uh, you know, a tether yeah. with all the computer controls going into the robot. And, in fact, it's quite interesting that because this great confusion that robot, robotics caused a lot of, AI caused a lot of problems with terminology all the time. And autonomy, right? It's one of the big ones that kills people because you're talking to politicians, they're thinking, you know, political autonomy, freedom, freedom, we're talking to philosophers and they don't get what roboticists mean. And this is a good example. Autonomy in robotics at the beginning meant that you did not have a tether. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> you put the computer on the robot. Right. That was now an autonomous robot because you'd put a computer on it. Oh, yeah. You'd freed it from its tether. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how that came. It was quite interesting, that. Okay. Uh, so, so anyway, so, so Brooks took this idea and, and suddenly you get incredibly rapid development that we're still going through at the moment. Mm-hmm. But that's sealing out now. Yeah. I mean, we're back to people, everybody's talking now about cognitive robotics and bringing that back in again, which that was banned for quite a while. Right. You couldn't talk about that. Um, but there's other developments that are really, really interesting, like Rolf Pfeiffer's stuff on, on morphological computing. Oh. And the idea is that you do a lot of your computing by your body. Yeah. So, for instance, if I swing my hand, if I stand up and swing my hand back and forward, it will end up touching my mouth. Right. So it's your body, the computing is being done by your body. You've evolved a body that does a particular kind of task. Yeah. So he's, when he's talking about embodied robotics, he's saying take the mind out of the computer and put it in the body. Right. I yeah. think that's a bit extreme because you need some sort of representation. So Brooks's big thing was representation, reason without representation. Yeah. But he's now got representation back in. Right. Because you can only go so far with it. Yeah. So... I mean, there'll probably be another explosion again because a new technique will come out and everybody will get really excited and think, you know, that will plateau again. And that, that's it's this plateau business. Like speed was great one, Moore's Law. Mm-hmm. Um, because of Moore's Law, suddenly we've beaten the world chess champion. Yeah. Um, now, when I started in AI, when I first started reading about AI in the 70s, even, you know, nobody working in AI really thought it was going to beat the world champion. People hoped that it might beat a grandmaster one day, yeah. and maybe not always, but occasionally. And here we have the whole idea that you've beaten the world chess champion. But it wasn't done the way that Turing would have done it, because he was really into chess. And I know from talking to John McCarthy, the, the you know, father of AI, and those people don't like that system. Okay. Because what you've got, they don't think it's AI. Right. Because the original goal was to make simple programs that simulated, you know, you got human intelligence. And what you've got here is like extremely high-speed, fast processors that can search, you know, millions of moves a second. So it's like putting a human, asking a human to arm wrestle with one of those big mechanical road diggers. (laughs) It's brute force rather than intelligence, you know. It's like, you know... um, you know, it's like Minsky's thing about uh, artificial intelligence is, is, any, is what make a machine, sorry, a science of making machines do things that would require intelligence have done by humans. Mm-hmm. And this is like, you know, a, a human needs a lot of intelligence to work out how to get through a maze. And it's with this kind of high speed thing, it's like it doesn't bother to work out how to get through the maze. It just blunders through it and smashes a hole through it and drives through it yeah. and out the other side. So they didn't really like that. And so that looked like, oh, we've got chess now, we can do anything. And then years later, we've got Watson, but there's a big gap there, yeah. like 10, 15 years. And so you get these great moments in it, which I'm very proud of. I mean, I really love my subject. I just don't go for the whole, you know, this is going to replace humans and be super intelligent and things. But, but I like the subject an awful lot. I think it's a great subject and uh, a very modern one. And it's going to keep progressing. But, but so, you know, you're going to get another explosion, another explosion, another explosion, and you'll keep getting this. And they might get further apart. They might get 50 years apart at some point, and maybe we'll get something really. But I reckon future generations won't be thinking about using artificial intelligence will change its nature. Yeah. Also has to be said that most of the people I know, actual practitioners who work in AI, 
don't give a lot of thought to these philosophical questions about is this real intelligence or something. This is people creating stuff with, yeah. with you know, in the field of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. People talk about we'll have an artificial intelligence one day. Well, we had one in 1956 at the first conference when they coined it because it's the name of the field. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what the work you do within that field is artificial intelligence. Is this artificial intelligence? Yes. Uh, but the bane of artificial intelligence has always been that the goalposts just continually change. Yeah. Every time you do something like play chess or something, you just move the goalposts. Like, well, that's a closed game, and so so it continually moves. Striving and to get to the moon. Yeah, and as soon as you get the program worked out, then it becomes part of software engineering. Yeah, becomes a standard program. It's on your i your iPhone is full of AI, mm -hmm. and in, in that would have would have blown people away in the sixties. You know. Can you imagine what they would think with an iPhone? I realise now that my iPhone has more processing power and more memory than the, the entire planet of computers in the 60s. <laughs> right. I mean, by far beyond it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and isn't it incredible that people didn't predict that? There's all these predictions about intelligent machines and things. No one predicted the internet. Exactly. I Not know. even science fiction writers. I found hints of it in um, some of Philip K. Dick Oh, yeah. Strangely. Yeah. But it's not really the same. I mean, look at Star Trek. Star Trek technology in the first season is really out of date now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had those little things that were like handheld things that are like mobile phones. Mm. But they certainly didn't have the internet or internet communication or connection. And even, even if they had predicted it, they would never have realized how much yeah. it had actually changed our lives. Yeah, well. but I think that's where a lot of what was AI went into and, yeah. and things like Skype and all, all those things that we're using now. So, so it's very, very practical, really, the real subject. You know, people really working in it. It's really practical driven. And if you push them in the bar, some will argue for strong AI, some will argue for weak AI, and some just will say, oh, that's sort of philosophical nonsense, I don't want to talk about it. You know, so it's, it's very varied. And, but you get the feeling because people working in the subject um, who go for the strong AI stuff really go out there and say, you know, machines will do this and things, get a lot of media attention. Yeah. So it looks like there's an awful lot of them, and there aren't. Yeah, right. It's very, very few that are really strong like that. I mean, maybe a handful. At, at most, mm -hmm. but somehow it seems as if there's a, oh, there's a lot of professors around to believe that, but most of them don't. Most of them are practical people, computer scientists, very pragmatic, and not <laughs> thinking that at all. And a lot of a lot of really hard-nosed computer scientists just think it's absolute nonsense when they look at things like Gödel's theorem and you know all these kind of different uh, different ways of looking at what computation is and what the limits of computation are. Just On that note, thank you for coming. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been really fun. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Okay, my deepest thanks to Noel Sharkey for this inspiring conversation. I have enormous respect for those who actually work this hard to make a difference in the world, and even more so when we're talking about matters of life and death. I also think Sharkey exemplifies how a lot of the purely philosophical discussions on agency and responsibility, moral status and the like can actually be translated into language that makes sense outside of the ivory tower, and that's a lesson many of us need to take to heart. The next episode of Such That Cast will be released on Monday, October 15th. Now, October 15 is also the Blog Action Day, where bloggers and podcasters all over the world get together to blog or talk about one important topic. This year, the topic is the power of we, which is a celebration of people working together to make a positive difference in the world. 
I have an interview scheduled in a week with a guest who is very special to me, and I'm going to try to talk to him about this topic. So please come back on Monday in two weeks for a very, very special episode of Such That Cast. (laughs) 